A little boy got lost in the YMCA and wandered into the women's locker room. Once he was spotted, the room burst into shrieks as women grabbed towels and ducked for cover. The boy watched in amazement and exclaimed, What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a little boy before? From his point of view, there was nothing to be alarmed about. Such a startling response is similar to what people might have thought when they heard Jesus voice these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Working as a spiritual advisor at Los Gilicos Juvenile Hall, I've come to expect one of two answers when I ask residents there this question. What do you hope to do when you are released? Or as they put it, get out. The most common answer starts and ends with that one day. See my family, enjoy my mom's cooking, and visit with some friends. The more unusual answer reveals something of a life the responder hopes for and intends to pursue well beyond that single day. The common Jewish expectation of resurrection in the first century was somewhat similar. It is that of a single day, which is the final and total event of history, encompassing the nation as a whole, when long-standing hopes would be fulfilled enemies defeated, sins forgiven, land restored, and God dwelling among the people. The hope of resurrection was associated with a day that signaled the end of one age and the beginning of another. Like my friends at Juvenile Hall, they saw this present life as characterized by waiting. The day of resurrection represents new life, a day of new beginnings. We know what it feels like to long for a day when, it, when all of life is restored, when the COVID pandemic is declared over. But imagine the surprise when Jewish hear, hearers heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. Not only would they have been startled by what he said, they would have found it incomprehensible they envisioned resurrection as an act of God related to a future date in time. Jesus associated resurrection with himself as the reordering of life in time. Jesus spoke these words to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who had died at their home in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. Jesus had left that area when Martha and her sister Mary sent word for him to come. We can see something of how Jesus felt about this family by the message they sent. Lord, the one you love is sick. Or as, John's, as John commented, Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. In response to their message, John tells us that Jesus intentionally delayed his return until Lazarus had died. Our scripture reading tells the story of what happens once Jesus arrives. Let us hear God's word read for us by Peter Schell. The gospel reading this morning is found in John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27 and 38 through 44 in the NIV. 
On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there'll be a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The Word of the Lord. Two major themes of John's Gospel were introduced in the opening prologue, Light and Life. These metaphors describe the relationship of God's incarnate Word to humanity. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man dramatizing the theme of Jesus as light. In raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 of John, we see the dramatization of the theme of Jesus as the life. Just as the Word in the beginning gave light and life to humanity in creation, so Jesus, the incarnate Word, gives light and life to humanity as signs of God working and the revelation of God's glory. It is no ordinary life Jesus gives, but new life, eternal life, life transformed by the resurrection. By saying, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus tells us that such life is not merely something to hope for beyond the grave or at the end of time, but this resurrection life can be ours now. Just as the kingdom of God has an already and not yet aspect to its manifestation, so it is with the resurrection. Following the resurrection of Jesus, the promise of future resurrection on the day of Christ's return to bring heaven to earth has already resulted in a change in the way we live now. Phillips Brooks, best known as the author of The Christmas Carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, described Jesus' offer of life this way. The great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death, 
That is not the great thing, but that we are to be new here and now by the power of the resurrection. Not so much that we are to live forever as that we are to and may live nobly now because we are to live forever. Brooks described the qualitative difference of this resurrection life lived in the present as living nobly. I would also describe it as living graciously, generously, and generatively. Graciously as characterized by living as the recipient of God's grace and treating others with the same acceptance and love. Generously as characterized by a willingness to serve others, not only out of our surplus, but as a way of sharing our life resources and the goods we enjoy with others. Generatively as characterized by promoting the welfare and the flourishing of life for others. I'll illustrate what I mean by each of these qualities of resurrection life. I grew up in a conservative church tradition that emphasized sin management and our responsibility to be right with God. Grace may have been part of the overall message, but I didn't hear it. I found few people could actually live by the motto, hate the sin, love the sinner. Rather, sin and sinner were treated alike as enemies of God. This approach to faith represents a stunted reading of God's word, in my opinion. It is, a, it is as if the Bible begins not with the glorious creation designed by God with a purpose, but with a problem that must be solved. For traditions that emphasize this sin management, salvation is offered by God, but demands also a continuous human effort as well. By contrast, traditions that preach grace emphasize its realization and acceptance and that it results in a life lived by gratitude and the extension of God's grace to others. The following story by Diana Bet Butler Bass, told in her book, Broken We Kneel, exemplifies this. Diana lives in the Washington, D.C. area, which is rich in cultural diversity, yet home to a high level of tension following the extremist Muslim attacks of 9-11. Listen how, how Diana Butler Bass was gracious toward people whose religious beliefs differ from her own. She writes, One day my daughter Emma saw a woman walking toward us, covered in a veil, and asked the inevitable, What's that, Mommy? Emma, I answered, that is a lady, that lady is a Muslim from a faraway place, and she dresses like that and covers her head with a veil because she loves God. That is how her people show they love God. My daughter considered these words. She stared at that woman who passed us. She pointed at the woman and then pointed at my hair and further quizzed, Mommy, do you love God? Yes, honey, I laughed, I do. And you and I are Christians. Christian ladies show love for God by going to church, eating the bread and the wine, serving the poor, and giving to those in need, 
We don't wear veils, but we do love God. After this, Emma took every opportunity to point to Muslim women during our shopping trips and tell me, Mommy, look, she loves God. One day, we were getting out of our car and at our driveway at the same time our Pakistani neighbors were. Emma saw the mother, beautifully veiled, and pointing at her, shouted, Look, Mommy, she loves God. My neighbor was surprised. I told her what I had taught Emma about Muslim ladies loving God. While she held back tears, this near stranger hugged me, saying, I wish that all Americans would teach their children so. The world would be better. Instead of viewing Muslim beliefs as wrong or misrepresenting God's truth, Diana treated these women with respect and honored their faith practice with love and grace, reflective of Jesus. Resurrection life is gracious like that. It is also generous. I recently learned of the philanthropic work of Dan and Jennifer Gilbert in the city of Detroit. Their charitable investment exemplifies what living generously looks like. The founder of Rocket Mortgage and owner of NBA Cleveland Cavaliers suffered a stroke, and after two years of recovery, he and his wife Jennifer initiated a $500 million project to revitalize Detroit's neighborhoods and homes which have either been abandoned or deteriorated due to delinquent taxes. Since 80% represent African-American homes, the Gilberts wanted to make sure they understood what the community wanted. So Jennifer participated in neighborhood, in neighborhood listening sessions. She said to the interviewer, the worst thing we could have done is to have everything figured out and written a check. So instead, we did a lot of listening. The interviewer zeroed in on the possible accusation some might have leveled against the Gilberts as being the white savior who comes in to remove the blight and save the black community. So the interviewer asked, are you sensitive to that? How does that make you feel when it is about race? Jennifer's response was both gracious and generous. The more you listen, the more you learn. And the more you learn, the more you realize you have to learn. We're empowering people within the communities to come up with the solutions. Finally, this resurrection life is generative, meaning it promotes and contributes to the flourishing of life for all. The world may not be the condition Christ intends, but through his followers, he's working to take it from where it was, under the rule of death, corruption, and greed, and every kind of wickedness, and bring it under his sovereign, life-giving rule. This is the outflow of the work of God in our lives, the natural response to the reality of Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection. Carrying out Jesus' work means bearing the fruit of God's kingdom come and the life that Jesus gives. 
It reveals the character of God in acts of love for an enemy and service to others, especially caring for the poor. This new way of life is an extension of the God we worship, the God who promised in Jesus to be with us and make his home with us. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's new life, not a plan to snatch people away from earth and take them to heaven, but to colonize earth, earth with the life of heaven. God's new creation is launched at Easter. It points ahead to the renewal, the redemption, and the rebirth of all of creation. At a luncheon for business leaders some years ago, a reputable economist was invited to speak about the recession. Making use of a large flip chart, the speaker made a black spot in the middle of the paper with a magic marker and asked someone seated in the front row what he saw. A black spot. The speaker asked several others and back came the same answer, a black spot. He walked across the, the platform to the podium and said, yes, there is a black spot, but, now, but no one mentioned the large sheet of white paper that it's on. With that, he said thank you and sat down. The host of the event looked nervously around the room, not sure of what to do next. At the back of the room, someone began to applaud. Eventually, the lesson sank in. What you see affects your sense of perspective and your life pursuits. To me, that black dot represents how people see life in this world without hope in the resurrection. Whereas the rest of the paper represents the resurrection life for those who have the faith to see it. In that space resides the possibilities to be gracious, generous, and generative. May it be so for each of us. Amen.